Well, hello, friends. Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, be with you. Welcome to Sermons from the Mount podcast. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill. I currently serve as the pastor of Mount Olivet United Methodist Church in Manio, North Carolina. Each week, we will post here audio recordings of the sermons that I preach from that church. Hope this one is a blessing to you. God bless. Take care. Friends, our gospel lesson and sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. We're in the 15th chapter, and we're going to start at verses 1 through 3, and we're going to jump over to verse 11b through 32. Anytime you see b, that means you're halfway through that verse, all right? Look for a comma or a semicolon or something. There's, there's going to be something there to tell you that's where you need to start, but we're Luke 15, 1 through 3, then we're jumping over to 11b through 32. And it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friends, this is the word of God for you and I, the children of God. Be to God. I was <clears throat> blessed and blessed um, growing up to be part of a big family, particularly on my dad's side. Dad has a sister and two brothers, and so that then begat for me a number of cousins for my sister and myself. And there aren't many memories I have growing up, many good memories I have growing up that does not include being with my cousins at my grandma's house. We were there every Sunday afternoon. After church, we came and dressed, or got dressed, put our play clothes on. You remember what those were? But we were there every Sunday afternoon, every holiday, most days during the summertime. We had a lot of fun together. But as you would expect, when you go to Grandma's house, Grandma's house had rules. One rule was, y'all stay outside. <laughs> Run around, play around, mess around, do whatever you want. When it's time to eat, we'll call you in. And then you go back outside. And you play till it's dark, and then, then you go home. No running in and out, in and out, in and out. If you were inside, though, that's where things got a little more strict. First of all, you do not, under any circumstances, go into the living room. You stay in the den. The living room was like the Holy of Holies in the temple. You went in there, you went in there Christmas, you went in Thanksgiving, thank you, and the adults were allowed in there when they wanted to get away from the kids. Second, you don't go to the back part of the house. You don't go mess around and play in the bedrooms. You might be able to go to the bathroom back there, but you stayed away from the back part of the house. You're in the den, you're in the kitchen, you're on the porch, or you're outside. Third, don't touch Grandma's ceramic bunny collection. <laughs> you walk, you do not run in the house. That's what outside is for. And under no circumstances, no circumstances at all should there ever, ever, ever be any slamming of doors. <laughs> now, these aren't unreasonable rules or expectations, are they? Grandma just didn't want a lot of messing around going on inside of her house. Now, please know, though, none of these rules made us feel unloved or unwanted. Nobody loves you like your grandma does. Amen. And my grandma was no different, but we, the cousins, we knew we were supposed to obey these rules. Now, due to circumstances of life, there was another round or batch of cousins that came along about 20 years or so after my bunch of cousins, right? That meant that a lot of their growing up years occurred after that first round got out of college. And I can remember going to Grandma's house one Christmas Eve with cousins my age and this younger bunch, about 20 years younger than us. And I remember being there and talking, sitting with my cousins and remembering that what we saw that day shocked us <laughs> to the core. First of all, they were all inside. 
They were not outside. They ran through Grandma's house. They laid around in the living room, not the den, mind you, laid around the living room like they owned the place. <laughs> Messing around in the back part of the house. One of them was carrying around one of Grandma's ceramic bunnies. <laughs> and I kid you not, what sounded like a door being slammed about every five minutes. My cousins and I looked at each other, our eyes wide, our mouths open. And we heard Grandma call everybody to come into the living room. And we kind of chuckled to ourselves a little bit because we thought we knew what was coming. Yeah, nobody loves you like your grandma does, but nobody scolds you like your grandpa does either. <laughs> we knew that this younger bunch of knuckleheads was about to have the proverbial rude awakening. And so we gather in the living room, and some of us are sitting on the couch, some of us are sitting on the love seat or sofa, some are sitting on the floor, and Grandma says, I want to tell all of you something. And we're like, all right. <laughs> I want to say Merry Christmas and give you your presents now and tell you how much I love you. And she handed each and one of us, if uh, every one of us, an envelope that had a card inside and uh, some money. And every one of us got the same amount. And we thought, now wait a minute. <laughs> they get to break all of the house rules. They get to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And you're not mad at them. You're giving them gifts. And not only that, they get the same gifts that we, the older, wiser, rule-following ones, get? That doesn't seem very fair, does it? Yeah, we didn't like them very much, the younger cousins. I mean, one of them even replaced me as Grandma's favorite. It's just not fair that these rule breakers get the same reward that we rule followers get simply because of their relationship with and love shared with our grandmother. Why should their disobedience be rewarded just because they come up to her, hug her neck, and tell her that they love her? So you'll forgive me if this week when reading this parable, I found some sympathy for that older brother. I asked in our email this week, which of the two brothers do you most identify with? And I'm sure a lot of you immediately say, well, the younger one. Because that's the right answer, isn't it? I do pray, though, that each and every one of you has, in fact, returned from some time in the wilderness and have come back to God. And we'll touch on that here in a second. But I think if we are being honest, we spend most of our days like the older brother. Because we want. A lot of times what we want is not a relationship with God. We want stuff. We want a position. We want power. We want fame. We want admiration. We want to be acknowledged for all the good things we are doing, all the rules that we are following, all the checking off of boxes that indicate that we are progressing on towards something. We want what we think we deserve and for us Christians what that sometimes means is we want to be recognized for our outside acts of piety and mercy that we display when our 
true hearts and feelings aren't matching up with that. Aren't in the right relationship with God. We think it's about doing and not about feeling. About knowing about serving Jesus and not knowing Jesus so I'll serve him. Head knowledge versus heart knowledge. I was asked yesterday to go preach a funeral for a dear saint over in Camden. And one of her daughters, as part of the, the service, was reciting some of her mama's favorite sayings. And one thing she said was, many people miss heaven by 18 inches. Many people miss heaven by 18 inches. Do you know what that means? 18 inches is roughly the difference between our brains and our hearts. You may think in your mind that following rules and being busy make you worthy of the kingdom, but friends, unless you have a relationship with Jesus, until you ask Jesus to be Lord of every aspect of your life, until you give yourself over to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the truth is you live separated from God. You say, well, I've taught Sunday school and VBS and I've served on every committee and I tithe and I show up to Bible study and I give to missions and I ladle out soup at the homeless shelter and I've not complained one time. At least not loud enough for you to hear it. Where's my certificate? Where's my adulation? Do you not appreciate what I do here? Tell me how valuable I am. Where's my fatted calf and robe and ring? That's just a 2022 spin on verse 29, isn't it? The older brother says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In that one verse, the word I is used three times, me is used one time, my is used one time. I, me, and my. This older son is very much like that fig tree that you and I talked about last week. He's been given continuous care and love, constantly invited to have all that belongs to his father, the master of the garden. Instead, he's choosing to pout and be angry because now it doesn't seem like it's enough. He thinks he should have more favor from his father and is completely oblivious that the lack of life and fruit his attitude is revealing about his inner self. His obedience and outward actions have actually been self-serving and self-focused. He's been using a worldly scale to keep score, even though his father never told him to live that way. So friends, what's on your scorecard? What is your motivation? What is your why when it comes to service? Because the motivation should be to see more and more come to the Lord. We should shout with joy every time someone that was in the wilderness comes to a saving faith in Christ Jesus. But I worry that sometimes we don't. That those of us that proclaim having been saved look down our noses at those that need the same grace that we've received. It's like last week when we talked about how hard it is to acknowledge our place as enemies of God. Sometimes I think we're also reluctant to take our place in the large line of sinners that make up this world. 
Because honestly, friends, the first two lines of the verse we just read should be good news to all of us. Because verses 1 and 2 is where we see the religious do-gooders, all the holier-than-thous in Jesus' midst, spend time grumbling about the kind of company that Jesus keeps, who Jesus runs around with. And here, friends, as we find ourselves in the middle of Lent, we find out that knowing that we are sinners is good news for lots of reasons, one of which is that makes us Jesus kind of people. Those who know how lost they are constitute Jesus kind of people because that's exactly who he came for. But the very grace that is the lifeline and source of holy joy for the lost who are found is sometimes offensive to those who maybe feel that, well, I was actually really too smart to get too far lost. And so to the spiritually studi, grace always looks unfair, because it is. Grace always looks unwarranted. Grace looks like the wrong thing to give to prodigal sons, precisely because those are the very types of folks who are going to squander that gift. Give them an inch and they'll take a mile, we say. But friends, Lent is a time to be in celebration of the grace of God, but nothing takes the wind out of the sails of grace celebration faster than that sneaking suspicion that grace is only for us and not for them, whoever your them might be. Friends, at the end of the day, where do we find ourselves? Are we whooping it up and hollering? at God's grand party for the lost which have been found, which, by the way, includes you and me? Or are we sitting on the back porch with the elder brother and all his Pharisee friends, muttering and grumbling about how unfair the gospel is? My study Bible says this. It says, There is an unexpected twist at the end of the story that applies to us who may not be thinking of ourselves as lost. Even we who have known the grace of a heavenly father can be stingy about that grace being applied to others. The image of the angry brother challenges us to have God's heart of compassion towards other sinners. Our compassion towards others is a good indicator of how well we understand our own need for grace. Notice how the older brother's dad responds. His father gently reminds his older son of his love. Both the older son and the younger son live by the grace of their father. Neither deserve any of what they have. The difference is that the younger one has fallen upon his father's mercy. And the other one hasn't realized how dead they are or how far they have separated themselves from the father. And just like last week's passage we read, we are left with an open-ended ending. Does the older son eventually join the party? Will he learn to turn his inner scorecard over to the father and submit to the kind of character and values and way of looking at things that the kingdom asks us to? And for you and me, will we repent of the self-righteous stories we have told ourselves about what we deserve and what others do not? Will we take some time, like the younger son, to come to our senses and return to our Heavenly Father? 
Will joy and the celebration of love and the fruit of the Spirit be the hallmarks of our lives, or will we allow bitterness and anger to take root? So I want to talk real briefly about what this return home looks like. What's interesting to me is that this parable is actually the third of three parables in chapter 15. Right? you got the parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and this one of the prodigal son. In the parable of the sheep, we read in verse 7 that there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It's conditional. That joy in heaven follows repentance, right? First there's repentance, then there's joy in heaven. Then the parable of the lost coin, verse 10, we see again, there is joy amongst the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, it's conditional. First there's the repentance, then there's joy and celebration in heaven. Now, pay attention to how things unfolded in our story. Coming to the knowledge that he had sinned against or before God and against his father... The younger brother prepared a repentant speech in his mind. I think that as he was making his way from the pigsty to his father's house, he was repeating this speech over and over and over. He was practicing it. He wanted to have it perfect when he got to the father's house. But before he could vocalize his repentance, look at what happened. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Now let me stop there. What this means is the father was looking for him. He never stopped looking for him. He never stopped searching for him. Even though his child went off straight away, the father stayed on alert, looking, watching, waiting for his child to return, patiently watching and waiting, watching and waiting watching and waiting. And then what happened? He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now for the first hearers of this story, this is super countercultural because a patriarch of a family didn't run anywhere. They didn't run out to go meet anybody. You came to them. But he ran to his child. Notice, before he apologized, before he repented, he saw him coming, ran out to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Friends, that's what we Wesleyans call prevenient grace. God's grace that is constantly and consistently watching and waiting and longing for all of us to decide that we have had enough of trying to do it our way and we know now what we have to do. When we come to the realization that we have to make our way back towards God to repent of what we've done wrong and it seems to me that once you and I make that determination in our hearts and we start on that long journey home that the Almighty God who has been watching and waiting comes running to us longing to embrace us and kiss us and celebrate us that we who were lost are now found. Friends, if you find yourself this morning feeling separated from God, 
chasing the wrong thing like the younger son, coveting the wrong thing like the older son, or somewhere in between. Let today be the day that you start that journey home. Because, friend, God has been watching and waiting. Watching and waiting and wants to run to you. E.B. Pusey was an Anglican preacher who lived in the 1800s. And he wrote this. Let me not think of you as one far off. Let me not think of you as a severe judge, since you yourself come unto me and fall on the neck of me, your poor prodigal, and give me the kiss of peace. You will not let those go away empty who come to you from afar. Lord, I come to you from afar the far-off land of my miseries and my sin. But you have brought me home. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, God bless. Take care.